Reacting to the world's best science, the Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist, and as usual, we shall kick off with a roundup of this week's science news. A new vaccine against tuberculosis could not only boost the effectiveness of the existing childhood BCG vaccine, but it could also offer protection against multidrug-resistant forms of the disease. TB is a global problem, with the World Health Organization estimating that almost 1 billion people will be infected by 2020. Multidrug-resistant strains of the bacteria are also becoming an increasing problem. The standard vaccine, the Bacillus calmiguerian, or BCG vaccine, that most of us will have had when we were a child, is very good at protecting against severe disease in children, but actually offers relatively little protection for adults. Attempts to boost the immunity by re-administrating the BCG have not been successful, so any new vaccine would have to boost this immunity, as well as offer protection against drug-resistant strains. This new vaccine, which has been tested and found to be effective in a range of animals, consists of four proteins joined together along with a chemical known as an adjuvant which actually helps to create the immune response itself. Each of these proteins has been shown to give partial protection against TB on their own but because there are so many different strains of TB out there no single protein is enough for a vaccine. By combining proteins into one super molecule, the vaccine offers protection against a range of different strains of mycobacterium tuberculosis, that's the bacterium responsible for TB, including a strain that's known to be resistant to multiple drugs. In guinea pigs that have previously been immunised with a short-term BCG, the new vaccine not only offered its own protection, but it also stimulated the release of immune components that were originally activated by the BCG. Now this makes it a very good candidate for boosting immunity from the BCG, which has been given to millions of people worldwide since its first use in humans back in 1921. Chris? Well, up into space now and a tremendous piece of forensic work that means that scientists can pinpoint to within a week or so when two asteroids collided. Now, the story goes back to January of this year, 2010, when a system called LINEAR, which stands for the Lincoln Near-Earth Asteroid Research Study, which is a robotic scan of the sky, spotted this bizarre object up in the asteroid belt. Now, to all intents and purposes, it looked and behaved just like a comet. So it had a big long tail, about 200,000 kilometres long, and it was moving in the orbit of the asteroid belt. Now, that was a bit strange, because most comets come from deep space and they don't tend to orbit in the inner solar system like that. But it did have this big tail. One other slight strange thing, though, was that it didn't have any centre or nucleus, which most comets do have. So, on the one hand, it did fit with being a comet. On the other hand, it didn't. And so scientists have since been studying this in some detail to try and work out exactly what it is. Now we know. There are two lovely papers in the journal Nature this week. One of them is by Colin Snodgrass, who's at the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research in Germany. And the other is a guy called David Jewett, who's at UCLA. And the two of them have used two different approaches to study this object. David Jewett and his group turned the Hubble Space Telescope to look at it. And what they saw was an object about 120 metres across, with this tail extending behind it. What the other group, Colin Snodgrass and his colleagues saw, was actually done using the Rosetta mission, which is ironically a probe which was launched from Earth in 2004 to go and look at another comet. And because it's now out beyond the orbit of Mars, it could look back at this 
particular comet, or whatever it was, from a very different angle than Hubble, meaning that you were looking at it from two different directions, which would enable researchers to confine the parameters of what they were seeing much more closely. What that analysis revealed was that this was not a comet at all. What it was was the proceeds of a big cosmic collision. What had actually happened is that one large asteroid, probably about 120 metres across, had gone barrelling into a much smaller object, probably about three to five metres across. The two had struck and the debris that was liberated during that impact was then streaming out behind the asteroid, producing the tail that fooled people into thinking it was some kind of comet. What's really intriguing, though, is that researchers have been able to use how much the debris has spread out in that tail to work out when this collision occurred, the 10th of February 2009, give or take a week. And the way they know that is that the particles of dust can be seen to be moving because of photon pressure. So when light from the sun hits those particles, it causes them to spread out and move a certain amount. And obviously the small ones move a bit further than the big ones, but you can work out, therefore, how much light must be impacting on them and for how long to be moving the particles relative to each other. And that tells you when they must have been liberated from their parent body. And that's how the researchers have been able to wind back the clock to February of last year. Now, this is in itself a wonderful example of cosmic forensics. On the one hand, it tells us and pays homage to quite how good the observations and instruments we've now got to make measurements that are incredibly precise, even millions of miles from Earth. But the other is that it does inform our understanding of worlds and solar systems other than our own, because many distant stars and systems are surrounded by disks of gas and dust. And understanding where that dust comes from will help to constrain our understanding of the formation of those different distant systems and therefore understand a little bit more about what might be in them. So it is a very exciting discovery because it advances our knowledge not just of this solar system but of other systems many, many light years away. Thanks, Chris. Now moving back down to Earth, a cheaper alternative to gold-plated connectors has been developed. More and more of our lives is becoming dependent on electronics, and that electronics is dependent on wires and cables. A cable needs a plug, and producing a good contact on a plug is actually quite challenging. The problem is that you want to make a connector out of a metal which is strong, conductive, and of course cheap. However, all the metals that fulfil these constraints, like copper, brass, etc., will oxidise in air. This wouldn't be a problem itself, but the oxides are insulating, so you cover your nice conducting contact with an insulating layer. The standard solution to this problem is to cover the contact with a very thin layer of a noble metal, which doesn't oxidise something like gold or platinum. The problem is, of course, that gold is very rare, and so it's expensive. And because of historical reasons, it's used as a secure investment when the financial markets are feeling insecure. So at the moment, it's even more expensive than usual. Exactly what we're experiencing at the moment, yeah. Indeed. So there's a, getting to be a problem. Now, whilst it's not possible to stop these cheap base metals corroding and oxidising, Mark Aindow and colleagues at the University of Connecticut have been approaching the problem from the opposite direction. They've been trying to make the oxide much more conductive, so it doesn't matter that it's there. They've been using a variety of approaches to do this. One is alloying the original metal with one that has a conductive oxide, so that some of these scales of conductive oxide on the surface are conducting, so when they touch to something else, they'll conduct well. And another one is adding metals to the alloy, which effectively dope the original oxide, adding or removing electrons and allowing current to flow, a bit like you do in a semiconductor. 
the results are actually quite promising. They've increased the conductivity of copper contacts by about a factor of three by adding lanthanum, iron by a factor of over 200 by adding vanadium, and adding ruthenium to nickel improves it by a factor of about 300. So the contact resistance only gets 20 or 30 times worse after a 1,000 hours in an oxidising atmosphere, which, considering it's not that big, isn't a major issue. Whereas if you hadn't added this ruthenium, it would get over 10,000 times worse. They're very encouraged by this result, as they're only using a few two-metal alloys and expect further improvements with more work and mixing three or more metals together. Um, And this approach has the other advantage that there's no problem with the surface coating rubbing off. So in the future, cables might not have to be gold-plated. I'm not sure it will stop the hi-fi manufacturers covering things with gold or platinum just to put up the price. (laughs) You can never quite tell if it's actually making a difference as well, but I'm sure there's something psychological. There must be a placebo element where you spend £50 on audio cables. It's got to sound better to you, even if it doesn't sound better to anyone else. Placebo, I think, is what most of it is. (laughs) Thank you very much, Dave. Observations with the very obviously named Very Large Telescope have shed light on how early galaxies grew by funneling cold primordial gas into their core. Giovanni Cresci from the Archetri Astrophysical Observatory in Florence in Italy, along with colleagues across Europe, used Symphony, that's the spectrograph for integral field observations in near-infrared, to observe three distant galaxies that formed only two billion years after the Big Bang. Using near-infrared spectroscopy, they were able to map the distribution of elements throughout these galaxies. Galaxies are thought to grow through a process of collision and merging, smaller galaxies colliding and becoming one larger galaxy. However, this doesn't account for all galactic growth. In fact, the three galaxies observed in this study showed very regular rotation patterns, as you would only expect to see in galaxies with very little or even no history of collision. These observations were looking for gradients in metallicity, that's the abundance of elements heavier than hydrogen or helium. Modern galaxies tend to have high metallicity in their central regions, with fewer heavy elements towards the edges. However, these galaxies showed the opposite gradient, lower metallicity in the central star-forming regions, and getting higher towards the edges. Writing in Nature, the authors argue that this points to the cold flow model of galaxy growth, in which cold primordial gas fresh from the big bang lacking heavy elements is funneled into the center of the galaxy and that's what fuels star formation and galaxy growth now this week the winner of the rolls royce annual science prize was announced during a special ceremony held at the science museum in london chris smith was there to hear who won in 2010 japan filed 330,000 patents america 240,000 britain uh, Other countries are now dwarfing on technology outputs, use far more engineers than we do. The numbers make quite sobering listening, don't they? But the main point that cyclonic vacuum cleaner inventor Sir James Dyson was making during his keynote speech at this year's Rolls-Royce Science Prize Award Ceremony is that if we're to keep British engineering open for business and internationally competitive then we desperately need to invest in the education and nurturing of the scientists and engineers of tomorrow. It's a view that's shared by many leading industrialists and specialist manufacturers, including Rolls-Royce themselves, as the group's Director of Research and Development, Professor Rick Parker, explains. We're very worried about the quality of science teaching 
and the sheer enthusiasm for science amongst young people today. They weren't going into science courses. They were often being put off science at a very young age, so they, there was no chance of them going on to university to do science or engineering because they just hadn't done the right subjects in the run-up to leaving school. Rick Parker. To tackle this problem, the company have set up a prize targeting teachers. Vaughan Lewis. Science Prize is a, an annual competition we've been running for teachers for the past uh, six years. It was launched on our anniversary year and the idea is we asked teachers how they would improve science education in their school or college with uh, £6,000 from Rolls-Royce. We work through the Science Learning Centre network to get those entries and each year uh, we get uh, between one and a half to two thousand schools that put an entry in and from those the 50 best are selected to win £1,000 as a shortlist and from that shortlist we choose nine finalist schools and those schools receive a further £5,000 to go ahead with their project ideas uh, over the following academic year. Why did you think there was a need to do this? At Rolls-Royce, we uh, are very um, committed to ensuring that the next generation of uh, students coming through will have the right skills, the right understanding, the right knowledge to be able to work in companies such as Rolls-Royce, high-tech and uh, high-value-added companies. So they've got the understanding of the basic science behind the things they need and they're enthusiastic about it and want to go on and study at, uh, at a degree level uh, and beyond so they can come and work for us or want to come and work with us at, appren- at apprenticeships and you know, get their hands-on and real science and engineering. It's telling, though, isn't it, if a company like Rolls-Royce has to start putting together prizes to try and stimulate what many people would argue ought to be going on in schools anyway. That's what schools are for, isn't it? To try and get people interested in sciences and development so that Britain carries on as a manufacturing nation. What I say about that is, uh, I mean, the teachers do a great job. There's a lot of very good teachers out there, you know, encouraging a lot of students to do these. But what we were trying to do with this money is allow them to do something above and beyond what they normally do. Um, so with the £6,000, if you're in a primary school, that's a lot of money. Our uh, winners last year were a primary school, and they received a further £15,000 from So they received £21,000 from us. And when we spoke to the science coordinator at that school, his budget for the whole school was £700 for the following year. So we're able, through what we're doing, is just to give them a big boost and allow them to do more than they would do, just to really uh, raise the profile of science and engineering within school and make it uh, fundamental to what, what the pupils are studying. Vaughan Lewis. So that's the theory, but what about in practice? Well, here's this year's winner to tell us. My name's Robert Aspden. I'm a science teacher working at Teesdale School. I run a a club called the STEM Club that's for science, technology, engineering and maths. It's supposed to encourage students to to want to take on those careers in future because England and Great Britain are, are getting behind a little bit with that and we're trying to make sure that doesn't happen and we stay the great nation for engineers that we are. So the Rolls-Royce Prize has allowed my club to push the limits of what the students could achieve. What was the project you did that uh, won you the prize? I had the students designing and building and researching enrichment devices for a captive group of primates, uh, some mandrills at Chester Zoo. There's a big issue at the moment about zoos and the lifestyle that animals have. So we were setting about trying to encourage and develop the lives of these animals to stop them from going insane in the captive situation. So we work with Chester Zoo, who do lots of work with their animals, trying to uh, encourage them to work for their food and prevent uh, these insanity behaviours that can develop. So what did the students actually have to do? And what do you think they learned from doing this? 
the first part of the project, we visited the zoo, so they got to see the animals and we had them studying the behaviours of the animals so that then when they went on to design the feeders that we made, they actually made them linked to the animals. So after we did the research using, obviously, the internet and other resources, um, they had a design phase where they designed and built the feeders. We then gave those devices to uh, Chester Zoo and a former colleague of mine who works for Salford University is doing an extended longitudinal study on whether we have or haven't actually benefited the animals because we wanted to prove scientifically that we have actually enriched the lives rather than just say, we built these toys, we gave them to them, we've done our job. We wanted to actually prove that. What about the children who took part in the study? How old were the students and what do you think they got out of it? Um, well, there's two parts to that answer, I suppose. Um, the the club is a key stage three club, so that's students of ages 11 up to about 14. The benefits to them was to do things like uh, just encourage their thinking behaviour, their team working, their skills about technology and science, so they can see how all that actually links together in, in an applied sense. And what about in terms of the long-term goal for Rolls-Royce because I've spoken with Rolls-Royce they tell me that their aim is to try to get teachers like you to stimulate students to become the engineers of tomorrow are you seeing evidence that the students that you have got involved in this project are going to go into research to benefit Britain in future as part of the project we actually did some analysis through questionnaires where we asked the students their opinion of stem related subjects stem careers and whether they were interested in moving into those areas, quite a lot of them said as a result of this project, we'd either encourage them to take on STEM-related subjects at A-level, possibly university, and um, there was definitely a positive relationship in the number of students who then thought they would actually be interested in careers in that. And there were a number of students who actually said, because we'd done something unusual looking at primates and, and biology, they didn't realise just how much engineering could be related to that side of science as well, so they were quite interested in doing that too. Science teacher at Teesdale School in Durham, Robert Aspden, who won this year's Rolls-Royce Science Prize. There are more details about the prize on the web at science.rolls-royce.com. So that's the school side of the equation, but what about higher level training that will turn university students into the specialist engineers and materials scientists of tomorrow? Well, in the last 12 months, Rolls-Royce have also launched a multi-million pound initiative called the Strategic Partnership, which aims to do just that. I'm Neil Glover. I'm a material scientist at Rolls-Royce, and I'm responsible for the um, content and execution of the research programme within the company. The Strategic Partnership is a partnership between Rolls-Royce and the EPSRC, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, that enables us to fund research in our, in our preferred universities within the UK on a whole range of material science topics that underpins all of our technology going into engines. People might say, well, Rolls-Royce is a big company. Why, why doesn't it fund its own research? Why do you need to work with universities for that? Well, the universities enable us to provide a, a level of um, deep independent research on the more academic aspects of material science that can then underpin the work that we do in company to deploy that technology into, into engines. So it's the freedom for the academics to think, to explore, to check out new technologies and to investigate problems and detailed issues of materials understanding that we just simply don't have time for in the day-to-day -day business. 
So looking at the nuts and bolts of how the partnership works, is this just a research exercise or is the aim here also to try to get people in a position where they could then go on to have progression in Rolls-Royce if they chose to do so? It's absolutely that. Um, Rolls-Royce is very much dependent upon the recruitment of highly skilled material scientists and traditionally that has always come largely from our own internal supply chain through the universities and through the research base. And so the strategic partnership, as much as it develops technology, also develops people who we can recruit into company or who can go into academia. Neil Glover talking to Chris Smith. And that strategic partnership also funds PhD studentships in material science at some of the UK's top universities, including here at Cambridge. If you'd like to apply for one or to work on the materials that will drive the jet engines of the future, there are more details online at nakedscientists.com slash roles hyphen race. The Naked Scientists Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.